Hi, everyone. This is the Broke Girl Society podcast. I'm your host, Christina. Thank you so much for listening in. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by our sponsors, The Better Institute, where people go to get better. You can find them at betterinstitute.com. And our new sponsor, Birch's Health, an online gambling addiction therapy. You can do it all online. You can find them at bircheshealth.com. Therapy is an amazing tool to add to your toolbox in recovery. It's a great way to stop that bleeding and start that healing. So please check them out. Today's episode features Claire, CEO and founder of Thrive Recovery out of Ireland. She joins us today to share her journey of gambling harm, recovery, and the nonprofit that she started. Um, She gets to also share with us what the landscape of gambling looks like in Ireland. So I hope you enjoy this episode. My mic malfunctioned. I didn't realize it. Sometimes it's hard for me to catch it in the moment. So I'm going to sound a little echoey. I apologize. Hopefully it won't happen again, but here we are. So enjoy this episode. Hi, we are here with Claire, and she is the founder and CEO of Thrive Recovery there in Ireland. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. I'm delighted to be chatting to you again. Yeah, we connected a while ago and we've kind of um, kind of stayed connected. And And I think we tried to do this a couple of months back, but life just got a little busy. And so we are, we are back to do this and get this out. I'm, I'm really interested to have this conversation to learn more about you, learn more about Thrive Recovery. But also, I'm really interested in the landscape of gambling over there in Ireland, and I know everybody's going to love your accent. So um, (laughs) if we could just kind of start a little bit about your your gambling journey, your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So like gambling for me started when I was about 21, and it was very, very simple. Like I remember, so I just finished my first year of college and um, I was going during the summer to visit my brother who'd been living in Australia for a long time. So I was just going out for a year or sorry, for a month to to see him. And um, the night before I was going to fly out, I went into my local pub, which would not be unusual for me to do of any evening. Um, And I was sitting at the bar and I was talking to everyone who's usually in the bar um and I would go in and like I just have a pint and go or I'd have two and I'd go that kind of thing I just kind of felt comfortable there so um anyway they were all betting as they normally do but I don't usually pay attention but I don't know for some reason that night I think I looked at the screen and I saw I saw a horse um, and I had the name of my niece on it. And I just said, oh, do you know what? I'll throw fiver on it. And I didn't even go in like someone. I handed it to someone who was going into the bookies. But the pub I was in, which was my local, there was actually just a little archway and a side door into the bookies next door. So you can go through that into the bookies without having to go outside the pub as such, which is quite handy for some people. Um and yeah, so we put it on and then it won. And I think it won at like eight to one. I got 45 quid back and I was delighted with myself. And I took it and I went out and then I flew to Australia the next morning. Right. So it didn't seem like much. But when I was in Australia, I kept thinking about it. And I remember walking around the business district there in, in Brisbane and 
there was a lot of I started noticing gambling establishments there and then there was this like rugby leagues club which I've never really come across before but they're massive in Australia um, and it was down the road from my brother's house and we went in there for a few drinks you know a few times while I was over there and they have like these poker machines that they call pokies everywhere so gambling is massive over there um now I did try them um they didn't really take my attention but the idea of gambling was very prominent in my mind like I remember at one stage I actually brought my sister-in-law to bingo over there because I just I wanted something that was going to give me that feeling that I'd gotten before I left um so I didn't ask how old you were 21 all right (laughs) yeah 21 and uh so that was kind of my experience over there like I did enjoy my time there but I have to say that was playing on my mind at the time and then I came back and um I st- I set up an online account nearly straight away when I came back and I was kind of putting on bets and stuff I didn't really know what I was doing um and then college started back and I started going to my classes and then fairly quickly I started not going to my classes and walking into the bookies um and finding myself spending all day in the bookies um and I'd be just putting like a fiver here fiver there and of course they all won at the start like I remember walking in and putting I put a euro on on a horse that was called Sovereign Sound and it was running at Kenilworth and this is how my mind works at the time right I was doing an English and history degree and Kenilworth was the name of a book written about Queen Elizabeth. So I thought, Sovereign, Kenilworth, that's going to win. It did. It won a 50 to 1. <laughs> Crazy stuff. But you almost start to think like that was meant to happen. You know, I, I, I've i got this. I've got this inside knowledge to this. So, you know, that hooks you in and it keeps you in. But, you know, it wasn't long before I was leaving that bookie's with no money you know my money gone for the week um which seemed a little crazy but I didn't think much of it at the time I just thought ah sure like I'll borrow a few quid to get me through to the next week that didn't stop for nine years (laughs) um and it just it got worse and worse like and I think a 21 year old college student female college student standing in a bookies all day probably looks really weird but to me I just felt comfortable I felt normal there um and like I started even doing dogs because then you had to wait 10 minutes in between races so you know you're filling that time because you start needing more and more then I um kind of started playing poker tournaments and I really did love the poker tournaments like because they're kind of social as well as I just enjoyed the game I really enjoyed the game um but that you know that didn't kind of do me any favors either and then I, I stopped that because I I got pregnant and I had a I had my son and at that point I wasn't going into physical establishments really at all but I it all moved online then and I started it was mostly like I was still doing horse racing but that wasn't really enough for me because I always felt like I had to hide what I was doing had to hide my phone you know if someone came along and. Um, so I was started doing the fixed odds betting and like the fixed odds stuff, it's every 30 seconds. <clears throat> and when you reach the point where that's not enough for you, 
it's really you know you've got a problem um and I had like I was up to my eyes and uh, I was not answering phones I was avoiding people <clears throat> and still yet thinking that one day I was going to bet my way out of that situation and that is what keeps you going in this because you really do believe you are going to well you actually believe it's the only way you're going to get out of this um addiction but like it really did take its toll on my mental health on my physical health I I had um, my second son um, when I was 30 and a few months after he was born, I was just in such a bad place and I ended up in A&E with like anxiety, with paranoia. I, I had memory loss. Things were so bad stress wise for me. So I was in there for a week, but being the gambler that I was, I wouldn't actually tell them what was wrong with me. Um, but I knew at that point that I had to do something like I really had to do something. Um, so I called someone who I'd read their book that they'd written about um, their gamma addiction. And the thing is, in Ireland, like there's, there's not that much to go on, but this person was in Ireland. So straight away, you have that connection of society, if nothing else. Um, but they'd written a book about how bad and it was an extreme case of gambling addiction and fraud and prison and then they'd come out and they'd made something better of their lives um and I had never found that before like over the nine year period of my gambling addiction I did go to GA meetings and it just never worked for me um I went to my doctor and my doctor gave me antidepressants <laughs> And I never used them because I knew they weren't what I needed. Um, and I went to several different counsellors and I tried CBT and I look, none of it worked, you know. But when I when I called this person and I, I said, look, you're you're probably the only person I think might actually be able to help me because I feel like I under, I understand you and what you've written about. And also, you know, you've you've shown me that there is this other side to gambling addiction, which is hope you know that life can get better nothing had ever given me that hope before um and you know as <laughs> as strange as it might be to have people just call you or now he, he is an addiction counselor so it's not probably not that strange but it wasn't that reason that I rang it was just I, I felt a connection to this person and he he worked at me for a few months and it was just phone calls because it was the start of COVID. And um, so, you know, no one was no one was seeing anyone, but he'd call me twice a week. We'd have a chat. We'd talk about everything and or we'd talk about nothing, you know, that kind of way. But he was there for me and he, he connected with me and he understood me. And then I did get into my recovery um, by that method, by that connection. And um, so like we worked together for about six months and then he had to kind of move on to other clients and it was getting busy. So that was fine. I had to think about how I was going to continue my recovery at that point um, because it is very lonely, especially when you don't do GA. You don't have that peer network that GA brings with it. So I got really into my health and fitness um, and that really did work. That did great things for my mental health as well. And I enjoyed it and I started getting hope that things were going to get better. Um, and then I started doing a diploma in coaching with neuroscience. And that blew my mind. It was fantastic because 
So, you know, these are not things that people teach you in school, right? No one teaches you about your your mindset and your belief systems and your values and goal setting tools. I'd, I'd never known about these before. And I was able to just change my whole outlook on life doing this course. And I, I felt like, you know, this is something I need to share with people, <laughs> especially in the recovery space, because you're so hopeless and you're so, um, you feel real shameful over everything. So I, I, I started working with different organizations that were using lived experience. I learned so much. Then I went to a funder, um, who, who, um, they had this like start your own social enterprise course, right? And you could, you did, you do the course and then at the end you can pitch for a little bit of startup funding. So I did that. Um, I came up with a program that put my lived experience, my professional experience and all of these coaching tools into one program. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to pilot it as a group thing. So I, I got some funding and I piloted two groups Um there and you know the the results were amazing we did pgsi scores we did core 10 scores we did an evaluation afterwards and it worked you know it really worked for people um i i'll I'll go back to that i suppose in a while but i never i genuinely never thought that i was going to get into recovery like when you try so many different things like you do think there's no way out and there's a lot of shame and a lot of stigma with this addiction on, on all over, right? But Ireland is especially stigmatized because it's so normalized here. Um, I would say in some groups, it's nearly expected <laughs> that you gamble. Um, and and we have a lot of, you know, substance use issues here as well. But there's there seems to be more understanding or more services available for that. And a woman with a gambling addiction in Ireland, it's just, I wouldn't say unheard of, but certainly not focused on in any way. Um, So when you say it's like so normalized, it's actually stigmatized to not need to get or to not want to gamble for your own mental health. I I wouldn't say in general, but I'm saying like, you know, you could be in a group in a in a pub and you know if you're not gambling you're the odd one out okay (laughs) you know um in a lot of bar situations um and I guess like I don't go to the pub anymore (laughs) um I I don't get time to drink with two children to be honest with you so I, I have no problem with that but it definitely wouldn't be a good environment for me to be around anymore Plus, you know, I, I, as right. I say, I wouldn't have time for it, but it was it was good. Like, I mean, it was good to change the way I had been living my life, because if I didn't, I was never going to succeed in recovery. And those are some of the things that you just genuinely have to accept as well when you get into recovery, that there are a lot of things you can't do and there are a lot of people you can't be around. And that's OK. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you I know for me. Uh, you know, as I started to build my recovery, it was like a natural process to kind of let those things go. Like before, like I stopped talking to the same people. Um, and it just like, even though there was this kind of like grief attached to that, it still felt like it still felt right. Like I could connect with the thought that like, man, you know, I love these people, but when I really look at like what, you know, the changes I need to make and that they need to to not be in my life, maybe necessarily, 
Um, yeah, there's a grief process with that. Like some of them I've known my whole life, you know, that's how I'd spent my life, my summers with these people, you know, doing like laking and like doing all these things, camping and all these things. And now all of a sudden, like, I don't have my gambling. I don't have these people. I don't have, you know, I don't have a lot, but, but so there was grieving that, like all of that, losing all of that. But then there was also this sense of peace that I hadn't had in a really long time. And that started to feel natural. And then it was like, as things kind of started coming back into my life, it allowed me the space to be like, "Mm, this isn't healthy for me. And I really like where I'm at. And, you know, you start to kind of naturally um, feel what's right and wrong. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because I've, I've definitely found that as well. I think one thing that recovery shows you is how much you put up with when you're in addiction. You know, um, I always think like we, we talk a lot about how addiction is trauma informed and trauma induced from some sort of either sexual or childhood experience. And I know that is the case in, in a lot of, you know, a lot of the time, but we don't really talk about the trauma from the addiction itself. Um, you know, like the, Right on. I would say that the actual traumatic experience of having the addiction, the the things you would do to to you know yes. fund your addiction, like that is a traumatic experience in itself. And the the what's the best word of saying this, but like the interactions you have with people, the negative interactions you have with people as a result of your um, addiction, like there's a whole legacy harm to that that isn't really focused on or discussed. Like there's people in my life now that I've probably built up walls with from my addiction that I'll never, I I honestly don't feel like I'd be able to bring those walls down with. So that is a traumatic result of that. Now, one other thing I'd say is like, you're, you're kind of a blank. Um, You're kind of (laughs) a little bit dead inside when you have the addiction. So although you you do feel like you you love people and you you care about people it's dulled it's dulled down inside you because the addiction is in front of you I was so grateful when I got into recovery to feel feelings that I had not felt for for nearly a decade um and like obviously I've always loved my children but but at the start I wasn't present with them and that was was traumatic in itself as well and and now now just being with them and appreciating their existence and their brilliance it's it's fantastic and these are things that like I just don't think we discuss enough and we don't focus on like the legacy harm is really important in my in my opinion because it doesn't just stop when when you stop like the pain only starts sometimes but you you get your senses back at the same time. Like I never paid my bills. I built up mountains of debt, right? And never intentionally, but just to feed the addiction as you do. But now I pay my bills. Now I'm sensible, you know, I'm probably too sensible now, but I'm glad of that because that trauma from the past keeps me in, in this sensible place now. And maybe... Maybe I never would have got there if I didn't have that to look back on as well. So there's so many different ways to look at it. But but this trauma that you experienced during the addiction, it definitely 
it it's there it exists and we, we need to talk about that because recovery is forever i am in my fourth year of recovery i'm only starting this journey i'm figuring out some things about myself i don't even know who i am you know um but i i'm for the first time ever probably enjoying finding that out because i'm not i'm not compulsively lying about my addiction you know i'm not trying to hide things i'm not avoiding people so I have the space to to look at that now and I have, what am I, 34 now? But, you know, I have time. I have time. My kids are yeah. still young. You're a young lady. You know, it's nice feeling um, yeah. in that sense. Yeah, I think, and I, I've said this before, like I have PTSD from my gambling. Like, yeah, there's there's like childhood traumas, abuse trauma that I can I can look back on, you know, that kind of fed into it. But then there's the whole trauma from experiencing, from from ruining relationships, from from just just what we've done to ourselves, you know. And even like now, here I am, two and a half years into my recovery, I still have like these little quirks from like I check my bank account all the time, you know what I mean? And I was the same way. Like my bills did not get paid. I spent my bill money gambling and then borrowed money just to survive off of, you know, and, and do the basics. And so even now it's like, now that I am, you know, taking care of all those responsibilities that I should have been taking care of years ago, you know, even now that I do that and I am a responsible person with, I don't like saying that it's not really doesn't have anything to do with responsible, but just, you know, doing what (laughs) I'm supposed to do. Right. Um, I still have these little behaviors that I'm still working through. And it's like, I will check my bank account before I go into the store. And sometimes I will even check my bank account before I, I leave, before I go to the checkout, because like, there's just this traumatic thing for me of like, when I was gambling and I had maybe $30 in my checking account and I needed to get $28 worth of groceries just to yeah. survive. And it was like, but then all of a sudden something would come through and, you know, it's just like these little things. Right. And it sounds, I know if somebody was listening to this and they, they didn't struggle with this kind of issue or didn't have a gambling addiction, they'd be like, what? But it's just, <laughs> so now, even though I know I have plenty of money to take care of my grocery bills and I, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing, I still have these little quirks, um, you know, of like just just from the PTSD of my gambling behavior. And, and, and it goes so much bigger than that. It, it, you know, there's still little issues that I'm working through just even in communication and, you know, like just navigating certain things Um, because those behaviors, you know, I gambled for 15 years. So because those behaviors were so like the survival, I call them the survival behaviors. Like you're just trying to stay in your in action of whatever addiction it is, but yet you're still having to survive outside of it. And, you know, so yeah, the whole thing is a process, right? And it's, it's a good thing that you are talking about kind of the legacy harm of, of that addiction. That's so interesting. I, I'm obsessed with checking my bank account as well. Yeah. Um, and I totally get where you're coming from with that. And there are, there's lots of behaviors. I could probably go into them all day long. We could um, probably do a whole episode on just like legacy behavior from, <laughs> from post-traumatic stress. Yeah, or... it is. And, and what I find is, um, I'm obsessed with, and I will say obsessed with success if that makes sense I don't mean success then I need to be business person of the year 
But I mean success in that I feel like if the gambling addiction hadn't come along, I don't own a house now that I don't, you know? Yeah. So my obsessive behaviors are trying to make everything work so that I get there quicker, you know? Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, it makes me motivated. And my kids are my motivation. I want to give them a home that's ours, you know? Um, but it, it's draining at times, too, because you feel like you're trying to make up for all the time lost and all the money lost. And, yeah, it's hard. And Finding the balance and, nice. like, accepting that loss and just kind of setting just setting new goals. And, you know, but your new goals are providing a house for your kids. But I think that's... that. I think you're right. I think that is a healthy goal. Um, it's just finding balance in it all. It is a healthy goal and, and it's fine. It's just that old behavior is that gambling, you know, I want it now. I need it now, you know, yeah. and and that is in the head all the time as well. But this is the goal I've been working towards since my first day of recovery. So I realize it's not it's not an overnight thing and it has to be done. And I'm a hell of a lot closer to it than I was a few years ago. So I, I can't complain about that. But I, I do find that there yeah, the old behaviors. <laughs> well and but I guess the, the biggest thing to talk about is like you're not gambling anymore. So that alone gets you that much closer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Let's go into the landscape of gambling in Ireland for those listening who don't really know what what it looks like. I know we've had um, some episodes with women in the UK that kind of give us a landscape and I feel it's probably fairly similar. Like a bookie is kind of like, you know, just for people who maybe don't know what a bookie is. Um, Betting shop, land-based establishment where you can bet on sports. I suppose would be the best way of describing that. Um, yeah, like it is. It like the culture of the UK and Ireland are very similar in a lot of ways. Like, and you know, behaviors would be the same. I've spoken to a lot of women in the UK, and and they would be. And one thing about women is generally it's more online, whereas I was doing it in in land based. But um, gambling in Ireland with women. there's certain cohorts of women as well like so it probably looks strange when I was standing in a bookies but like you know there was older ladies who go in and out and you wouldn't even notice them um it's not it's it's frowned upon I would say like um women don't talk about it the stigma is massive and uh through what I do I've worked with a lot of women and they're terrified to talk about it now, me talking to you today, me setting up an offer profit and all the rest, that is my way of staying accountable. Um, I've put myself out there because it works for me to, to own this. And the reason for that is the stigma and shame. Because, like, I remember one stage I was going to do an interview that would have been like mainstream enough and someone didn't want me to do it, you know, um, because it was like, oh, God, you can't do that because what would people think of me if you do that? Um, and the, there's that shame. It wasn't just shame of me having it. It was shame on the family for me having it um, or, you know, the society around me for having it um, because it's not talked about. And that that shame 
I lived in that shame for the start of my recovery and I was terrified. I avoided everyone and I just took it counting the days and someday things will get better and all the rest. But then I realized that if I own that shame as such, I'll say own that shame, but if I own my problem and my past, then no one can shame me for it. And that's what put me out there. But um, there is no... I'm probably the only woman actually talks about it and I don't even go mainstream. So it's really, really hidden massively. So, and I think that the problem with that for women is gamblers can be an uncomfortable place for women for one. So a lot of them won't do that, but also you have the mother side of that. I mean, women with children really don't want to be found out. You know, they, they feel this extra sense of burden and shame and guilt um, as well. So, I think the worry in Ireland for me is that um, they don't know where to get help and they don't know how to connect and how to find people who understand them. But they also probably don't know the benefit of that as well, because here it's like something wrong with you. You either go to the residential place down the road or you go see a counsellor and that's it. No one thinks, why don't you just find people who understand you and can talk to you about it? I don't think that that's really pushed. And I do see a problem with that. And like I do try and get Thrive Recovery out there with regard to getting in touch with uh, treatment providers and doing a bit of <laughs> a very small bit of social media. Um, but at the end of the day, not everyone's going to see that and not everyone's going to know about it. And it's probably the person who needs it most who won't. And then they're stuck um, and they don't have no one to turn to. And there's very little understanding of it. Like, I don't know how many times people said to me, you know, I mean, that like, do you say that to a drug, someone on drugs or, or someone who's drinking? I don't think they get that kind of um, that kind of reinforcement of, oh, sure, you're the problem. Like, and I'm not saying that you don't have a problem, but, you know, it's it's seen differently and it's perceived differently. And that's a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of people, they don't understand, they they feel like gambling addiction is a financial problem or a moral problem, something that's easily controlled, but what they don't understand, it's this, it triggers the same, it triggers the same responses that drug and alcohol do. And it triggers the same, you know, addictive patterns that drug and alcohol do. And it, it affects our brains similar. It 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 makes those changes, the same changes, but because it's not talked about enough, you know, people don't understand that. They think it's just like, what? come on, just stop. Like all it is is pushing a button, right? Mm -hmm. Or like on your phone or whatever it is, like just stop logging into the app. Just stop pushing the button. Stop going to the place. And, you know, to try and explain that to somebody who's never experienced addiction um, is, in my opinion, one of the hardest things I've had to do. Yeah. And, and, um, I think selfish was probably, it's probably the word that comes to people's minds. It's probably the perception is that you're just a selfish person. And I understand if you've not gone through it, that you will see it that way. You know, um, like when I was, um, when I was 18, I was put on a, a dopamine agonist because I got this endocrine disease. And I found out years later that one of the major, major side effects of this drug is gambling addiction. Right. Oh. But I went to my uh, endocrinologist who put me on this um, for years and years. And I kept saying, 
I think I've got a problem here. I've read a little bit about this. It causes gamma addiction. I'd like to change med- medication. And he kept, I mean, I, I, lo- I really like the man, but he kept fobbing me off. Do you know what I mean? He kept mm-hmm. kind of going, nah, you know, he didn't really believe me. So it got to a point where I went off it myself and I probably shouldn't have done that. But I did. I went off it for over a year um, with no replacement. And that is the time that I got into recovery. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason, but there's possibly a factor there that no one would consider, you know, um, could be the reason for it. Um, So I eventually got him to agree to put me on a different type of medication, which I'm getting on fine with now. But um, even the guy who knows the history of this drug it's it's actually a drug for parkinson's disease massive correlation here with gambling addiction and this drug he didn't even believe me (laughs) you know it's crazy yeah and i think that's another thing you know that it's important to kind of empower in women is to advocate for themselves right because nobody's going to advocate for us better than ourselves and to kind of you know, look at everything that's in our life and kind of question it, you know, and seeing is, is this a possible cause or is this like contributing, you know, because I think, and kind of what you were saying, like in the day, it's not what caused me to do it, but it definitely was a factor and, and to try and like just advocate for, for change in, in all aspects of our life. And, um, so good for you for, for trying and, for taking it into your own hands to do that. I think I had no choice after a while, to be honest with you. Like, and and I did try, like I did try for years to get that help. And you get this reinforced sense of failure when that's not working for you, which makes it so much harder to get that help. But like a huge part of this addiction is, is hopelessness. It's suicidal ideation and it, Anyone who's experienced this says that they haven't had that. I I struggle to believe them because it gets you down to a point where you just don't know how to get out. Um, But because I had two little kids depending on me, I had to do something and I'm glad I did. But, But like I say, it's not a straight road. Like recovery for me has been so up and down. And, you know, last year, last year I lost my dad and that was really hard. But one thing I will say about that is I was so glad that I was in recovery when I lost him because, you know, he had experienced the addict for so long and at least he got a chance to see that that wasn't always going to be the case for me, you know, and, and that was nice. It was like, obviously it wasn't nice to lose him, but it was nice to know that he had seen the better side of me. And that's a reality check as well, because you have to think like, when you're in the depths of addiction, if something happened to you in the morning, that's the way you're going out with the world. And and you can't just stop by that thought. But I'm just saying, at the end of the day, it's your brain that's going to change your behavior. And it's you fighting for that. So all of those little factors make a difference. You know, and you can, I know that there's a lot of research into people taking medicines for gambling addiction I'm not a fan personally but if it works for you fair enough but at the end of the day it is your mind your mindset that is going to get you into recovery and sustain you in recovery and little questions like that I always say to people what did you want where where did you want to see yourself at 10 and what do you want to see when you're 80 looking back very very simple questions but massive impact if you think about it 
Because go back to who you wanted to be. Is that who you are now? And when you're on your deathbed, are you the person you wanted to be? And that's the start, you know? Yeah, that's where the coaching gives comes you, in. Gives you kind of a map of where to start now, you know? Like, let's get back to those those dreams and those hopes and all those things um, because there's still so much you can do for yourself and so many ways to to turn it around. It's never, it's never hopeless, you know? And I think that's a good segue into the work that you're doing over there in Ireland for Thrive Recovery. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what you offer and how people can get a hold of you? Yeah. And you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll follow on from what, from what, from what you said there, because um, with regard to getting into recovery, sustaining recovery and starting this organization, that is all done from standing on the shoulders of giants, right? With the recovery side of things, I'm happy to admit that I needed someone to show me how to do that. Um, and that's okay. You don't have to figure it all out by yourself. And with the the starting Thrive Recovery, which is a not-for-profit social enterprise providing support services for people through lived experience, <clears throat> like I was able to look at what was being done elsewhere and go, we need that here, you know? Um, so I really do believe that my recovery journey is is propped up by people who have done great work beforehand. And I'm happy to admit that. Um, so like going on to, to what Thrive is, like, as I said, I, I pitched it to a funder. We did a pilot. At the moment, um, it's, it's a six-week recovery program that I'm running, um, group recovery program. There is a lot of different topics in it. And the topics are, like, you start off just looking at, where you're at right now you know how good and bad your relationships are your finances are whatever it is right then going into goal setting techniques and what you actually want to achieve and where you want to be because if you don't have a vision it's very hard to move forward um and you're looking at nutrition and and all of that kind of stuff building support networks financial well-being fixed mindset and growth mindset eye-openers I think, um, belief systems, values, gratitude, just again, basic stuff like what I never knew about. And I think that everyone needs to have these tools. Um, and there's also like, I would show people a lot of, you know, recovery videos and, and motivational speeches. And I have all these little, um, you know, inspirational quotations in there. Um, and it's just, it's just a different way of approaching it, but, it's not even about the content sometimes, Christina. It's just about the connection you make with the people who are going through it with you. Absolutely. I mean, I'm there and I'm facilitating it as the person with lived experience, but that just guides a pathway for everyone else to connect with each other as well. And like, you know, we did our, our pilot groups in January this year, but like we still meet every week, <laughs> you know, and we still chat and, you know, we mightn't all show up every week, but that space is there for when you can and when you want to show up and you need someone to talk to. Because at the end of the day, that connection means everything. And when you're having a bad day, you want to talk to someone who understands your bad day um, and just have that outlet. 
And that's kind of what we're doing at the moment. It's just, I was very, I was very keen to provide people with a different type of space that did, didn't exist here. And like everything we do is online. So it's not exclusive to Ireland. And my original idea was just that I felt people in Ireland are really limited for what they could um could access, especially from a lived experience point of view. But no, it's it's lovely. You know, it's lovely. And I've made genuinely great friends through it, which those connections, they're just different to to other people, you know? I agree. And Some of my closest friends now are people I've met just in the last two and a half years. You know, and it's it's weird because before that I had lifelong friends, like lifelong friends from the time I was a kid. But by the end of my addiction, it's like, I didn't, they didn't know who I was. I had changed so much and my behaviors had, had just changed our relationships so much that I really felt like I was so alone. And then, you know, when I entered recovery, my, the, some of the closest people in the world to me are people I met in recovery and just, yeah, it hits different. Those conversations hit different. They, they connect in a way because it's like, they've been through the same, you know, same trials that I've been through. They've, they've experienced the same behaviors that caused a lot of the same harm and just being able to share, you know, the pain and the grief of that with somebody who really understands it. Um, but also understands that we want better for ourselves and we want better for each other. Like that right there is just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I've experienced for myself. I think that's a very good point because uh, that's what I would say I've noticed mostly is the support that this network would give each other. You're nothing but genuinely happy when someone has a good experience and you're always supportive of what they do and the choices they make and you're not being judged. Right. That is massive in itself. Um, yeah, and and I was at a I went to a conference last week actually, and it wasn't a gambling conference. It was it was for substance use, and it was in Northern Ireland. Um, but I wanted to go and and kind of introduce what I was doing because obviously there is a lot of cross addiction, and I hadn't met pretty much any of these people ever before, and yet it was the nicest experience I've had in such a long time. Not only was I in Derry's a lovely city, I'd never been there before, but the people were so happy you know they were genuinely happy but in a way that you know this was a time in their lives where they weren't just happy but they saw the world in a different way because of what they had experienced previously and you know that going forward in that uh, mindset that you're only ever going to have those good intentions and you, you you're trying to make things better and that's not that's not a bad place to be like everyone does something in their lives they're not proud of unfortunately for us we probably did a lot of damage along the way and it lasted a bit longer than just a bad night out or whatever it is but we are doing our best and we're we're trying to make things better for ourselves for our loved ones for anyone that we can do it with I think like what I'd like to for if anyone wants to listen to me on this podcast but what I've what I what I would take most from from my own recovery was owning my recovery and and the value that that brought me and I do, I know it's not for everyone I know that not everyone wants to admit to their family addiction or they don't want the people around them to know about it but there's something very very empowering in letting that happen because 
there's actually a video, the video my counselor sent me once, and um, it's one of those TED Talks. You might have seen it. It's, it's, it's about surrendering the outcome. Um, can't remember the guy's name, right? But the, the moral of the story is that this guy had gone to prison. He'd had a gambler or not. He'd had like a substance use addiction, and he came out and he was on parole, and he wanted to um, he wanted to start a new job. So there was a gap of a year in his CV and he, he, his employer asked him about it. And he just, he thought to himself, what will I do? So he rang this, his sponsor and the sponsor said to him, surrender the outcome. So he didn't really get this, but he, he went back and he uh, said to his employer, um, well, look, I, I was in prison for a year, to be honest with you. And he got the job, <laughs> right? Because he was honest. And he was straight up and he wasn't hiding anything. And the hiding anything is, there's two parts to that because if you're caught out hiding something, it doesn't look good for you from a reputational point of view. But also I think if you start something hiding, hiding something behind you, then you're never really going to be your true self and you're never going to be the best version of you. Now, as I say, it's not for everyone, but I have found it empowering, even if it's only to the people around you. Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. It's, it's trying to get back to just an authenticity of like, of just being ourselves. And that means not hiding. That means not lying. That means really just trying to just make the better choice in, in every instance. And like, am I saying that that's going to be perfect? No. Um, but it's just constantly just trying to make the next right, right choice and trying to stay true to ourselves and, you know, facing, facing the sun. But I like, I like that phrase of like surrendering the outcome. Like you have no control over the outcome. All we can do is just be honest and know that it's going to turn out the way that it's supposed to turn out. So I, I, I like that, um, well, again, I want to thank you so much for your time. I think we could probably talk all day because we're both so passionate about the work that we're doing and about our own recovery. If somebody uh, would like to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Okay, so there is a website, Thrive. It's Thrive-Recovery. And I don't know why, because I have both domains, but I'm using that one. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm on Instagram. Um I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. There's a page for me. There's a page for Thrive as well. So I am contactable. Um, and I'm very happy to speak to anyone who's interested in taking part in the program or who needs to speak to someone, maybe if they're in Ireland and they need to speak to a woman, I'm here and happy to chat. And I like, you know, I think that we should be trying to build uh, this network of women who can support each other and help each other. Um, and, uh, you know, me and you have connected. We've probably connected with someone in every country at this point. Um, and there's there's a lovely kind of pay it forward effect there, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. I'm I think sure you'll beautiful. be putting these in somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what's beautiful, too, is like um, – of the connections we have made, like you're in Ireland. Um, we, we have a lot of the same connections in the UK. Um, and that's like, just this, when I think about it, wouldn't it be amazing to like pull, pull a podcast together with all these amazing women who are, who are rocking their recovery and they're helping others. And they're, um, you know, a lot of you guys are building these programs from the ground up 
And it's, it's just so amazing to see the work that you all are doing, um, you know, in your countries and for yours isn't women specific though, is it? You're, you'll help like yours is if somebody's listening that, that, um, it's not women out. specific at all. But what I do is I will work one to one with people if they don't want to do the group or I am thinking that maybe doing a women specific program would make sense as well. And I'm happy to do that if there is a certain amount of women who want to do that. So, yeah, I'm I'm open to whatever comes along. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much. I'll put all your contact information in the show notes for, for those who are listening. And again, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and the time that you've taken out today uh, to, to record this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Christina. And I appreciate the work you do too. <laughs> oh, thank you.